So yes, a new series. Living a victorious life. It's a good series. It's a good thing to press into over a number of weeks, isn't it? So we're going to be spending seven weeks looking uh, at what Jesus has to say to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapters 2 and chapter 3. And we're going to start off this week uh, looking at his, at his letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 and the first seven verses, if you're going to want to follow on with that. I hope you've had a good night's sleep. I hope that you've had a good breakfast because we're going to do some work on, on this this morning. What you're going to see, uh, not just today, but over the next seven weeks, is that these letters to the churches, they follow uh, the same format. You're going to see that, that in each week, each letter opens up with some little description about Jesus, and that description is going to be referring back to the way that Jesus has uh, revealed himself or things that he has said about himself in Revelation chapter 1. That's how the letter will start. Then there'll be some, th- some things uh, that Jesus has to say to, to commend that church about. Here are some of the things that are going really well. Uh, and then here, here could be some complaints. Here are some issues that he, might, that he might have. Now, not all of the churches have something to commend. Not all of the churches have something to, to complain about. If there is a complaint, then that's going to be followed with some sort of a correction. This is what you need to do. And if you do that, if we overcome, then there is a promise. And that promise is going to be something about the, the, the glorious life that is in store for those who are victorious, for the overcomers. And so we're going to see that um, over, over the next couple of weeks. Now, to provide some sort of context of what's going on in, the, in, this, book, in this book of Revelation, um, the, the, the book is actually transcribed, written down by, by the disciple John. John knew Jesus intimately. John is the one who described himself as the one that Jesus loves. John knew something about, about life in Christ that the rest of us are just hoping to know. So John, uh, by this stage... He's getting on in years. He's probably in his early to his mid-80s. He is in exile on the island of Patmos. And the way he describes it is that he, he is in the spirit and has an encounter with God in the person of Jesus. And the person of Jesus says, John, write this down. And if I was in his shoes, I would have gone, okay, where's the pen? I'm going to write this down. Jesus is about, is about to, through me, write a book. I'm going to write this down. So it's clear that we have some understanding that John is convinced that the person who is speaking to him is Jesus, is Jesus the Christ. In chapter 1, there there are a number of layers and, and descriptions and observations that John makes that has him convinced that it is actually Jesus who is speaking. One of, one of those is John describes describes this figure who is speaking to him as as one like the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man was Jesus' favourite way of describing 
himself. He actually didn't describe himself as the son of God. He described himself as the son of man. And, and what that actually means is human. So what John is looking at is somebody who actually appears to be human. And then, and then Jesus goes on to describe himself in a number of other ways, and you see them here. He describes himself as the living one as the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the one who has overcome death. And so it's clear that John understood that the one who is speaking to him is Jesus. And then we see in these couple of verses here the, this, the, this interesting stuff about, about lampstands and, and about stars and about, about angels. And, and this is going to be important to our passage this morning. But a lampstand quite obviously is where the light is. That's the job of a lampstand is to hold a lamp. And the job of a lamp is to shed light where there otherwise would not be light. Light overcomes darkness. The first creative act that we see in Genesis is where, is where the Lord proclaims, let there be light. And in doing so, somethingness overcomes nothingness. Light overcomes darkness and the darkness will not prevail. So light then throughout all of scripture then, then has this symbolism. It, it connotes the presence of God, the action of God, the creation of God that is good, that overcomes darkness. The first time we see a lampstand is actually in the wilderness where Moses is commanded um, to, to make a tabernacle, the, the, the tent of meeting, the precursor to, to a temple. And there is a lampstand in the tabernacle and, and it is in a room where there is no natural light. And so the purpose of the lampstand where there is no natural light is, is to, is to symbolise the presence of God in the tabernacle, in in the temple. Uh, in, in John 8, 12, uh, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here we have these seven lampstands, uh, and, and we see quite clearly that the symbolism of the seven lampstands is they are the seven churches. So the seven churches are representative of the light and the presence of God in these seven cities to whom the letters are, are addressed. So the churches are not buildings. They're not individual congregations. They are the body of Christ in these cities. They are the body of Christ in Ephesus. Seven lampstands are the seven the seven congregations. Uh, in Revelation 1.13, it says that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. So Jesus is walking and moving in the presence of, of the lampstands. It's, it's reflective of, of life in the garden in Genesis where, where God was present with humanity uh, in the garden. Here is Jesus among the churches. And then also we see here as the, as the stars and, and angels, what's going on? On there. So interesting again that stars represent light. Jesus holds these stars in his right, right hand. And he says that these stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And, and the word for angels actually means messengers, messengers, guardians, pastors, leaders. 
to the messengers of, of these churches, to the guardians, to the pastors, to the leaders of these churches, this is to whom these letters are addressed. One with spiritual authority over the church. So let's get into our passage. So this should make a bit more sense now, right? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, that you've not grown weary. It's good stuff, right? But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is to your credit. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. We could spend a month in this passage. So Ephesus, let's try to understand a little bit about the context, about the church to whom this letter is, is directed. So one of the most famous things about the city of Ephesus uh, is goddess worship. It is the home to the temple of Artemis. Artemis was the daughter of Zeus in, in Greek mythology, and she is the twin sister of um, Apollo. Apollos? Apollo. Apollo. Uh, she is the goddess of the hunt. She is the goddess of nature and of childbearing. Uh, there's all sorts of kind of unsavoury practices that go along, go along with goddess worship in, in Ephesus. Uh, we also understand that, that Artemis uh, is, is the same as the Roman goddess Diana and potentially also the Egyptian goddess Isis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it was three times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. Emperor worship was also rife. Um, and it's interesting, Ephesus is a, is a big city. It is a wealthy city. So it was known as the first great metropolis of, of Asia. It was the Roman centre of, of government uh, in, in Asia. Because it was at the convergence of a bunch of different trade routes, there, there were uh, multiple cultures and, and religions and people groups that were all flowing through, so a very multicultural society. Um, money and goddess worship were kind of the engine room in, in Ephesus. And so there was a strict um, class system based on, based on money and based on, on religious status. Uh, lots of division within the society because of those reasons. Now, the church in Ephesus was planted by Paul in AD 52. That's around 40-something years before John takes down the account of Revelation. Uh, it was led by Timothy for some time. 
And also, interestingly and importantly, the, the Ephesian church died. So somewhere in the second century, it ceased to exist. So whatever the warning is that is in this letter, um, the, the sense is that that was not, that that was not heeded. Of course, Paul wrote a, a letter to the Ephesian church, and there are some really key themes that were in that letter that, that seem to be reflective of both the commendation and, and the complaint. So core to what, what Paul was writing about is this idea of unity, this coming together into, into one body with Christ as the head, and, and what it is that binds this body together is love, and this should be overflowing into all of our relationships uh, uh, in the house, in the workplace, and, and so on. So he, here's a couple of examples out of the book of Ephesians. So he, Jesus, has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. So Ephesus, Greek city, uh, Gentile church, so one in place of the two is, is, is about the, the Jewish and Gentile people, one, one new humanity. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped. Each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth, building itself up in love. I love this verse, Ephesians 5.1. If you do have your Bible open and this is not highlighted, Highlight this verse and spend some time on it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. So here we see Paul talking about, um, he, he wants to see the, the Ephesian church functioning as one community bound together in Christ functioning and flourishing in love. Kind of reminds me a little bit of, of our vision. And so then Jesus, in, in his letter, there's lots that Jesus is calling out and saying, Ephesians, like this is great stuff. Your works, your toil, your endurance, you don't tolerate evil. You're discerning, you're testing, you're committed to the truth. You're patient, you're steadfast. You're doing it in my name. The church in Ephesus from the outside, it looked, it looked ideal, healthy, doing all the right stuff. But the Lord judges the heart. Something is wrong. Something is really wrong. Although it looks good from the outside, the light is about to go out. Darkness, no lampstand, absence of the presence of God, of the light of life. And if Christ is walking among the lampstands and your lampstand is no longer there, where does that leave you? It's serious. So what does it mean 
to abandon the love that we had at first. And your, your, your Bible might say um, to, to forsake your first love. What does it mean? Well, it, what it does not mean is to go back to the earliest feeling that we had when we first received Christ. It does not mean to recover the excitement, to recover the emotion of love. Anyone who has been in a deep and a long relationship knows that the emotion and the excitement that you feel at first, while it's great, it doesn't mean very much in the long run, not compared to the real knowing and being known that only comes with time and with trial. The Ephesians did not need to recover their giddy emotions about Jesus. This is much, much deeper than that. This is one of those points where looking into, working into language helps us a, a little bit. And so the, these words for first and for love are important here. So first indeed means, first protos, indeed, mean, indeed means the earliest, like the number one, the first thing that happened. It also means the best, the greatest, chief, and agape, we need to also understand what, what kind of love we're talking about here. It is agape love. It is the greatest of loves. It is the love that God has for us, such that he, he poured himself out for us. The model of love that he demonstrates us to show to him and, and to others. This is the greatest love. Agape is a uniquely biblical idea. We don't see it in other religions and other, other cultures and other writings. So Ephesians, you had this. You had this greatest of loves of, as beloved sons and daughters of God. You've abandoned it. This greatest of loves, Jesus says, agape, it sums up the entirety of the law. So when Jesus is being tested by one of the, one of the teachers of, of the law in Matthew, um, the, the, this, this teacher of the law asks Jesus, he says, Teacher, which commandment of the law is the greatest? And Jesus responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first protos commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law. And the prophets. And of course, these two commandments speak of one love. The Bible is clear. If you don't love your neighbour, then you don't love God. And you can't love God without loving your neighbour. It's a package deal. They're two sides of the one coin. This is the entire lasting covenant law. Love God, love others. And so, Ephesians, if you have lost the one thing that encompasses the entire law of the king, the one thing that sets it apart from all other laws, from all other kingdoms, you are in trouble. Let's go even deeper. What, what does this particular love look like? How do, we, how do we tell this agape love from other kinds of love? Well, Jesus makes it painfully clear. So this is in John, John 13. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. 
And it's by this that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then he says the same thing just two chapters later. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This is what love looks like. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The love that Jesus commands us to have for him and to have for others is the same love as he first has for us. This is God's foundational principle of community. His foundational principle of relationship, of kingdom, the laying down of our lives for one another. This is where the Ephesians started, it seemed. They had this. But somehow they lost this first love and were swallowed up by good work. And this good work path is the wrong path. Paul says that I can do all of these things, but if I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. Without love, I'm nothing. So to put it bluntly, if you're not abiding by the foundational principle of the kingdom... You can't actually be in it. No matter how good you look from the outside, no matter how you toil, how you persevere, how cleverly you defend your faith, and even if you do it in Jesus' name, if you abandon your greatest love, the light will go out. So Jesus says, remember the heights from which you've fallen. Repent, stop, turn around. To everyone who conquers, I'll give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. What the heck does that mean? And what does the tree of life have to do with abandoning our our greatest love? Well, first of all, and this should help us over the next seven weeks, God through Christ is addressing this promise to everyone who conquers, to the victorious, to everybody who overcomes. And we need to get this straight. Who is the conqueror? Who is the one who overcomes? I want it to be me. I want to be victorious. I want to be an overcomer. I want you to be overcomers. I want us to be victorious. But it's Christ. It is only Christ. He is the only overcomer, the only one who has permission to eat from the tree of life. The rest of us have fallen short. That's the bad news. We are conquerors insofar as we share in Christ's victory because we are in him as the body of Christ, as members of his body, as branches that are grafted into the vine, as the church abiding in Christ, we participate in his victory. You are not a conqueror. I'm not a conqueror. I will never be a conqueror in and of myself. It is only within Christ that we overcome, and this is salvation. We're not saved separately. We're not saved even alongside Christ. You are not even saved separately from me. 
We are saved because we have become one flesh and we live in God. We don't become God, but we do become united with him in Christ by the indwelling of the same spirit. Because it is in him that we live and we move and we have our being. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. And the really interesting thing is when you translate the word in, it means in. In. This is the good news. The good news that you have died, that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Christ is the conqueror. Right, back to the tree. Uh, We see the tree in Genesis 2. We see it in Revelation 22. Uh, It also appears in Proverbs. If you've got the Catholic Bible with the bonus books, then uh, it'll appear a couple of places in there as well. Uh, In Genesis, the tree of life is in the Garden of Eden. In Revelation, it it is in the Garden City. In both instances, the tree of life stands in paradise. Paradise is not in heaven. In both, in both accounts, it is clearly on earth. But in Genesis, it is earth that is unmarred by sin. And in Revelation, it is, it is the renewed, restored. It is the reconciled creation. And so we see the tree of life is bookending the Bible. It's important stuff. We don't want to gloss over this, this idea of, of, of the tree of life. Now, in Genesis, of course, there are two trees. There is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. No tree of knowledge of good and evil in the paradise in the city at the end. These two trees stand at the start of the biblical story as these cosmic metaphors about two modes of existence. The symbolism is rich, it's layered. We can't get our head around it because we're not Jewish. Two realities, two kingdoms, and a, and, a, and a choice is put before humanity. The tree of life is not just some magical plant that gives eternal life. It is the tree of the king. It signifies life and flourishing according to the order of the kingdom of God. According to his foundational principles of community. So let, me, let me explain this. When theologians attempt to understand Scripture, particularly when you're talking about metaphorical writings and apocalyptic writings, which is what we're dealing with in Revelation, we need a key. We need a way of understanding to unlock its truth so that our understanding remains consistent or remains true to the nature and to the intent of God. And one of those keys is this, and this is really, really helpful as as you read the Word of God. God cannot will something other than himself. Makes complete sense, right? It's completely logical. God 
God cannot ordain, will, say, do something that is at odds with God's self, with his own being. So when we see these two trees in the garden, both of these are consistent with the person and the will of God. Well, how is that? Well, on the one hand, we have this tree which represents, the tree of life, represents a mode of existence that is entirely consistent with God's self. And yet on the other hand, because God is a freely choosing being, we also have a tree which represents the freedom to reject that mode, that order, and therefore to be exposed to the consequences that that rejection entails. So you can see, like, it's important that we have some understanding of who God is and what God is like so that we can discern what is, what is and what is not consistent with himself. Does that make sense? There are three basic ways that the church pretty much universally understands God. There's, there's certainly so much more that we can say about God, but you can universally in the church we can say these, these three things. God is community. God exists in and of himself as triune relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. God is community. God is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. God does not exist outside of time. God does not exist separately to time. Rather, all of time and space and matter exists within God. God is eternal. And God is love. And this is one of the most incredible theological and philosophical conclusions that John comes to when he boils it all down and he says that God is love. Love is not something God does. Love is something that God is. And so we can see that God in and of himself is a community of eternal love. And so anything that God would will has to be consistent with God's self. And so that the kingdom that God envisions, that he invites us into, is an eternal community of this self-giving, self-emptying agape love. And the Bible, the Old Testament, calls this shalom. So the tree of life is not just about some prize of eternal life. Eternality is a core trait of the king and therefore of his kingdom. If you are a citizen of the kingdom, then eternal life is part of the package deal. So to say that you have permission to eat from the tree of life is to grant you citizenship, participation in the community of eternal love. This is bigger than just living forever. And it's pretty cool, right? This is a big gospel I want this. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents something that's quite different. Uh, Now, we tend to think of good and evil on some sort of a spectrum, right? Evil at one end and, and good at the other end. And if we just try to stay at the good end, then all is going to be well. We kind of think that the kingdom of God and eternal life is just sitting at this far end of the spectrum, Can I suggest to you that this was the failure of the Ephesians? The kingdom of God, life, the eternal community of love does not exist 
anywhere on the continuum of good and evil. Because the real enemy is not an issue of morality. It's not an issue of good and evil and right and wrong. The enemy is death. The enemy is separation from God. It is separation from the eternal community of love. And death is not overcome by being good. It is overcome by being in life itself. It is life in the vine. It is life hidden in the living one. You know, when Adam and Eve chose to eat uh, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they exposed, to them, they exposed themselves and all of humanity to the possibility of an existence apart from God, to the possibility of an existence out of relationship, and we call this sin. It's a different category of existence. There is no evil on God's continuum. Jesus tells us quite clearly that God alone is good. God is only good. That there is no darkness in him at all, only light. For those who are in God, there is no knowledge of good and evil. There is only light and life and love. Good and evil represent a completely different paradigm, a different order to the kingdom of God. But when Adam and Eve ate from that tree... They chose their own order. And they were free to do so. They were commanded not to. Yet they chose the right to define good and evil on their own terms. Autonomos, self-law. It's where we get autonomy from. Our own order, our own law our own morality, and we've been crushed and we've been seduced by it ever since, defining good and evil, right and wrong, in and out. But the kingdom of God exists nowhere on the spectrum of good and evil. So when the Ephesians abandoned their greatest love and they pursued all of the trappings of being good, they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They ate from the wrong tree. No doubt they felt quite self-righteous about how adept they had become at defining and and defending right and wrong of of good and evil, practising their own moral virtue in their own human strength and even doing it in Jesus' name. And there's a word for this. We call it religion. But Christ says, remember then from what you have fallen. Repent. Do the works he did at first. What was the work they did at first? They lived as the beloved. Remember that, remember that the first love. First of all, we are loved. This is the first love that God loved us. Then everything else flows out of that. Listen to this also, also John. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought to love one another. And then Paul to the Ephesians, therefore be imitators of God, beloved children, and live in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. As the beloved be imitators of God. This is our work. Christ's correction to the Ephesians was for them to recapture their true identity as the beloved, to be imitators of God and to live in love, to join in his community. And of course, the same is for us. In the final assessment, it is possible to live the good life. It is possible even to live the good life and to do it in Jesus' name and not have permission to eat from the tree of life. For those who accept the gift of love, you have this permission. You have the right to join in the eternal community of love because your life is hidden in Christ, the only one who overcame, the only one who is victorious. We are not victorious by being good. We are not victorious by our toil, by our patience, our discernment, or even our theology or our endurance, but only in Christ who first loved us. This is the good news. I'm going to pray. Oh, Lord, I... This is hard teaching, right? Die to ourself. Lay down self law, lay down our own conceptions, the right to define what's good and what's evil and to simply live in the community of the beloved, to live wrapped up in that, the triune community of eternal love. It's tough teaching. Father, I just ask that you, that you would just place a deposit in our hearts of this love, of what it means to be the beloved a new revelation of, of the breadth and the depth, the extent of the love that you first have for us so that our lives might just simply be a reflection of that, that by your spirit in, within us that we would be imitators of your love. I declare this over us, over each of us, over your body, in your perfect name, Lord Jesus. Amen.